Hi, everybody. Kel Weinhold from The Professor is In. Welcome to the new version of our podcast. We are recording our podcast live on Wednesday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific. Make sure you're subscribed to The Professor is In newsletter to be sure and get that link if you'd like to join us live. Or you can listen to the edited version in the podcast form the following Tuesday. If you'd like to support the live or the podcast, you can head over to bit.ly slash ourpod, bit.ly slash O-U-R-P-O-D, and help support these ongoing programs. Thanks a lot. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday Live, our weekly free broadcast that then gets beautifully edited by our fantastic editor and made into a podcast for Tuesdays. So welcome. If you would like to support any of these things, the podcast, the Wednesday Live, the awesome chance to talk to us, you can um, visit us at bit.ly.ourpod, bit.ly slash, sorry, O-U-R-P-O-D and um, become a member for $3.99 to support this entertainment that we bring to you once a week. And if you have questions for us, be sure and type them in the chat uh, rather than the Q&A, since I seem to be unable to track the Q&A section. This is my deficit, not yours. Um, Dr. Kelsky, what are we talking about I can about track today? the Q&A though. So I have the little box open over there. I We'll have the little chat box open over here. There we go. I do webinars all the time. So, oh, please give the address again where we can support you. Bitly slash our pod, B-I-T dot L-Y slash O-U-R-P-O-D. So Dr. Kelsky, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about leaving academia. I just had an interview this morning with a reporter, a journalist who is going to be writing something for Nature. Yeah, and she basically wanted to know, are, um, is this impression that we're getting of, of the, this mass resignation of tenured faculty, um, is, this, is, this, is this really happening? Mm-hmm. And, and that's not actually why we decided to do this topic today. We decided it last week. Uh, but really, I guess it's just more evidence that it's the buzz. It's just the constant buzz is what's going on. People are leaving and, uh, and, and things are changing. And it's really a tidal wave in academia of people leaving, including tenured faculty. And so, of course, I told her all about the Professor is Out Facebook page, which is now at just about 20,000 members. And well, the two biggest surprises about starting the, the private professors out Facebook group is that first of all, that it grew so quickly because I expected it to be a small, rather intimate group of maybe at most a thousand people and uh, just a lot of, you know, it's a very casual and it turned out it instantly went to um, 20,000 within, this, not instantly, but in the space of a year, but that the, how many tenured people are on it. I never expected that, never in a million years and tenure track people. So that's really the the evidence that I have that things have really changed. And I was really interested in this conversation today for the people on the other end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. The, so I think that the, the numbers of people who had planned to go into the a tenure track job, mm-hmm. who are able to do that 
um, is dramatically different. Like the number that that planned it and the openings are mm -hmm. dramatically different. So I'm really interested in the conversation for the folks who are having to grapple with the dream that isn't going to happen or the how they're going to find themselves and what they're doing, find themselves again after so long searching. So I think we can we can bounce back and forth, right? Between the what what if, what if you've been doing this for a really long time and and suddenly it's just in the as you rethink this thing, it's not really what you wanted to spend the next third doing, right? Mm -hmm. And the folks who are grinding mm -hmm. out on their on the on their dissertations or on the job market and all of those things and really wrestling with, yeah, a job is probably not going to happen mm -hmm. in the in the tenure track. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean. Yes. So the fact that tenured people are leaving is not is is really interesting. It's on my mind because of the interview this morning. That was the entire point of it. But yeah, that's not really the main story. The main story is that um, an already uh, pretty catastrophic job market was then hit by COVID. And so the percentage of PhDs who are going to end up leaving the academy is somewhere, you know, depending on your field, somewhere around 75, 80%. And so it's the tenure track a job that is the alternative, the alt right, job right the now. The normative, job, right? Yeah, the normative uh, uh, path for a PhD is to work outside the academy. And that I do include in that um, things like alt-ac jobs, like uh, being a director of a center on a campus. But that, so when I say alt-ac or outside the academy, I do include jobs that are still on campuses, but are not on the tenure track. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's basically, but you know, for everybody, whether no matter what level you're at, whether you're tenured, whether you're a grad student, whether you're an adjunct, someone who's been searching for years. Um, it, I think that after many conversations with you, Kel, that in some ways, step number one, and this is, I even said this in the interview, um, is that before you say, I have to leave, well, the first thing you have to do is I have to heal my relationship right, with right. the academy. Right. And then the question of whether you leave becomes a very a much more organic right. and natural and less bitter and uh, and um, resentful departure, because healing your relationship with the academy means grasping that academia is basically a cult that seeks to encompass your entire life and force you over the period of your indoctrination, which is what a PhD program is, into into agreeing to the, uh, these cult like. Uh, value a value system and a community and so extracting and it's all based on external validation and from the minute you apply to a grad program all the way through defending your dissertation proposal defending your dissertation trying to get funding applying for jobs sending out articles for uh, to journals sending out grant applications it's all external validation mm -hmm. and then your tenure case is external validation your promotion mm -hmm. to full is so the whole entire um trajectory is external validation mm -hmm. so the main thing to do is to uh reclaim your autonomy such as it is and i know under capitalism we're all like you know this is very fraught but to the degree that you can just reclaim your autonomy from those external value systems and say, no, I'm the captain of my ship. I decide what's right for me. Mm -hmm. I, and my mental health, my physical health, and my financial health are more important than any job. Whether mm -hmm. I'm, I have tenure or whether I don't, it doesn't matter. I come first. And that can really help you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you and I have talked about this before, and I certainly found evidence of this in the, in the beta test I did of the art of leaving, which is a 
10 week program that, to be honest, I designed probably two years ago, I ran the beta test and then the pandemic happened. And every month I planned on getting it online. It didn't get online, but, but it will be available starting April 1st. Um, and, and in that course, I say from the very beginning, you may not leave the academy at the end of this course because you may be able to work through the steps that you understand what was toxic about your relationship with the academy. So I feel like, you know, and this could, I'm going to own that this could be very much my sort of very much working class background and understanding what a good job is and a bad job is that um, there, the academy, as my dad always used to say, when I would call him and complain about some work week, right? When I was, when I was first a visiting professor and I would come up, call and complain and he would say, are you outside? And I'd say, no. And he said, do you get dirty? And I said, no. It's like, okay, then you've, you know, you've crossed into a different kind of job. So let's just talk about it in those terms. So, and and what I've what I've found in talking to people over the last couple of years in in doing the um, conversations about leaving the academy and the and the counseling not counseling but the uh, consulting about it is there are things that you have control over and there are things that you don't and there are things that you've been sucked into that you can step out of and there's damage that's been done that is not reparable and it's time to leave. And I never want to tell anybody, you can sort this out. It's like that, that toxic positivity. But I do think it's a really interesting idea of what you can slowly extract yourself from that you could actually be okay in a, within, within the terms of capitalism, be okay within the system that is devoted to gaslighting. So I think mm -hmm. part of it is just stepping away from the gaslighting. But we've been talking a lot. So I would love to hear of the people who are who are with us today, how who of you are are sort of coming to terms with either not getting in or leaving? And what's the top of mind for you as you think about that? What's your big excitement, fear, challenge, you name it, about that process? And I know that some of you are gone. I mean, yeah. have have left or retired or or walking the line between. So and I have I think, much more to say, by the way, we're just give, having a little pause here yeah. to make sure Karen that- Karen has a lot to say on this. I topic. have a lot to say. I'm just holding back right now. Okay, I, well, go ahead and we'll just- Kel and I have this conversation in. about once a week where I say, well, Kel, have you been on the Professor Is Out Facebook page? And she says, not really. And then I say, well, it's filled with people who have also actually left and they report back. They're right. reporting back from these other corporate jobs, nonprofit jobs, uh, small business jobs. And it's, I mean, granted, granted that maybe it's selection bias is such that they wouldn't come and tell a story of being miserable outside of academia. They want to tell a story of being happy, but they basically tell stories of being happy. Right. They say, I'm not objecting I, to, I'm not my, objecting. Um, we, we have my, the same conversation. My peers here appreciate my credentials. My my boss out, told me to take to leave at five o'clock and wouldn't allow me to stay later. You know, all of these things where once you get separated from the value system of academia, you find there are other ways to live and other priorities right. to have. Right. So, 
okay. But Karen, so you have your, you have things that you, that, that sort of the, the Academy as a cult is one of the things that you have to contend with and, mm-hmm. and sort of your relationship within it. And, mm-hmm. and to be clear, the part of the Academy that we're talking about, when we talk about in the very first podcast we ever did, you can go back and listen to it. We go through like an article listing the, the identifying marks of a cult. And then we run the Academy through the same shredder and and, you know, the one that sticks with me all the time is that sense of you're either in or you're out. You can't, once you've, once you've broken the chain, um, you, you know, through the chain link fence, you are, um, you don't get to come back in again. I mean, you're like put out and that is incredibly painful for people. Mm-hmm. And also standing on one side of the chain link fence, really wanting to be in there and mm-hmm. there's no and looking in and, and like, and right. In, and so, so. I think that that's that you to contend with that longing and pain is a really important thing, but what are some of the other things that, well, you- I actually just want to notice that uh, one of our commenters said the endless job search and encounters with search committees and deans is becoming another layer of oh, institutional trauma. And I just want to remind folks here today that last week's conversation, which w- was put up just uh, yesterday as this week's podcast episode, and it's called managing rejection. And one of the, um, as we work through four elements of managing rejection, one of them does talk about the endless annual cycle of applying for jobs and being rejected for them. And that, and that while every career has rejection and every life has rejection, that really in some ways only academia has this literally a regimented annual cycle where every fall you have to gear up and every spring you have to feel sick to your stomach or every winter with the MLA interview or whatever, the conference interview. And then, so it's so cyclical. So there's a lot of trauma that comes from that. that And I think there's also um, that the, uh, I don't know, I don't know about other industries, but, but my experience of working outside of the academy is that when you interviewed for a job and you made it to the interview stage, that when you didn't get the job, they told you. And <laughs> the number of people I talk to who apply for jobs and once they reach the interview stage, don't get any acknowledgement. Campus mm-hmm. visit. I talked to somebody the other day who was went on either two or three campus visits last year and did not hear back from any university about not being chosen. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's also that there is a cruelty in this particular thing that, that, that reminds me. And I think maybe this is where, you know, we can explore our own classism, but I, you know, we, we watch our 19 year old trying to get a job at some place. And this was before everybody needed a job. And like, he's out there applying or sending applications and getting no response. And you kind of accept it as like, well, you should not, I mean, I'm not saying I think this, but I think that we kind of justify, well, it's an entry-level job. Well, blah, blah, blah. But across the board, like humanity, what the fuck? So anyway, mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that it's, that it's, the institution is unkind, mm-hmm. unkind in job applications. It is. It is. From the very beginning, like send me these 55 documents for this job for one year, or, mm-hmm. I mean, it's unkind, but there's yeah. another comment here Yeah, that says, my fear regarding leaving academia is that academia has naturalized certain explo- exploitative, exploitative, boy, I can speak today, um, work conventions for me that I'm afraid I won't be able to recognize exploitative work practices or other red flags in industry. 
I might go the opposite direction. I might say you might be way more sensitized to them because if it feels like the academy, you can pretty much say, oh, this must be just, there must be something wrong here. But I totally understand that, right? You've gotten so used to the hierarchical mistreatment that you could step right back into it again. Mm -hmm. I think that, well, I think it's, you raise a really good point. There are some issues um, that first of all, you're, you're probably outside of certain industries and there are others like the cultures of, of startups and things like that, the culture of Silicon Valley, those are cultures of overwork for sure. But generally speaking, what I'm hearing from the people that I talk to nowadays is that your coworkers won't actually let you overwork. Right. <laughs> that there, there's, it's just not the culture. There are cultures of overwork. Academia is one of them, but a lot of places are not. And it's like, no, it's five o'clock. We're going home. Our weekends right. are our own. Our evenings are our own. That's why we do these jobs. So um, I'm not saying that your concern is not quite legitimate, but it may not necessarily be as scary as you think. Right. There may be, there may be gates on the other side to keep you from, mm -hmm. from doing that. And I also think it depends on whether you get drawn into um, jobs that are more also located in vocational awe mm -hmm. in that idea that I'm serving a higher purpose. Um, so if you get pulled into nonprofits, yeah, I can see repeating all the same things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, yeah, so, yeah, I, think, so I, mean, I think that that that's a really reasonable thing to be on the lookout for. But like most things, if you know it's a propensity, you can identify it more usually. More. Well, and also go back to where we started. Uh, your job is not your identity, and your identity is not your job. Heal your your relationship with work. I st yeah. I started out by saying heal your relationship with the academy, but actually it's heal your relationship with work. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's that our jobs don't love us back and never ever will. And in fact, our jobs will put us directly into harm's way because mm -hmm. that's what jobs are under capitalism. And so they put us in harm's way. They extract profit out of us uh, with disregarding our well-being. And so basically, um, you know, there's that idea and there is a name for it. And Kel, you've talked about it before, but, you know, there's also the idea that if you can't extract a higher wage from your employer, then you can increase your wage by working fewer hours. And that doesn't necessarily mean you clock in for fewer hours, but just do less work. And that may, and if you keep that in mind, um, do the minimum amount of work that you can do to be acceptable to retain this job, then you won't overwork. And it right. does take a, uh, it does take a mind shift. It takes, uh, I talk a lot in my TED talk called Academia is a Call. I talk a lot about the martyrdom that we are, we have become martyrs to this on the altar of some kind of moral purity of higher good in academia and other places with vocational awe, librarianship, social work, uh, religious areas. But, um, but you, 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 none of those are, uh, all of those are jobs. They're all jobs. They're all, you exchange labor for pay, every single one of them. So your labor and, has value, work mm -hmm. up to the, to the value that they pay you for and don't work one step over right, it. Right. And by the way, I just want to cite, we, we talk about um, vocational awe with the person who does the scholarship about it, Fobazi Attar. Mm -hmm. um, and I just want to make sure that we're citing her and, mm -hmm. and you can go to episode 2.36 um, for the interview about where that comes from, that I just want to make sure that that she gets the credit for the research that she's doing around that idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, when I talk about 
people uh, when I talk with groups about leaving academia, and um, and I'm doing a, a small workshop tomorrow and and March 10th uh, called Leaving Academia, a two-part workshop for academics moving out and moving on. I, I talk about four points after we sort of talk about this stuff, this value and autonomy and things, external validation. Basically that academics uh, have a number of challenges. And the first one is that they don't know, that, that we don't know what we know. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna like elaborate on each of these in a moment, but we don't know what we know. The second is we don't know what jobs are out there. The third one is we don't know how to translate ourselves for those jobs. And then the fourth is we don't know how to break free from the cult. And I do see that we have another question here. How long does it generally take people to deprogram themselves once they decide to leave? And I'll tell you, it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So please don't rush yourself. Don't feel like it should be done in a week or a month or six months or even a year, because I would say a year is the minimum. And it's probably going to take longer than that because it sure took me, I left voluntarily and it took me longer than that. Well, I've been, I've been out for a decade and I still every once in a while fall into some kind of academic mind trap. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to, I want to, I want to go back here and and maybe rather than just because of time constraints, maybe rather than sort of going through each one of them in depth. um, If, if we could get a sense of like, do you folks out there listening, folks listening to us right now who can respond, um, do you have a sense or what is, here's a better question. What is your sense of your competence or employability outside of the academy? Mm-hmm. What, what is yours? If you were to just Good answer question. honestly, right now, if you're riding along in your car, listening to the podcast, or you're out for a walk. And I say to you, what is your understanding of yourself as employable outside of the academy? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? And the folks who are in here on the webinar, feel free to just put it in the chat. We'd like to hear from you, please. Yeah. Please share. It will not be used against you later (laughs) in a court of law. And and you'll notice that we never cite anyone. Yeah, we don't name names names. in the podcast. So Mm -hmm. it's visible. But and and so there, I think that there's that question, Karen, right? And then do you have a sense of the jobs that are out there? Mm-hmm. Do you, do, when you think about not being involved, do you have an automatically like, oh, I could be here mm-hmm. or I could fit here or what you're drawn to? Mm-hmm. Are you, are you sort of restating the four things that I said? Yeah, but I'm asking so them far as questions. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm hitting those two questions because the t- they're the two that I feel like we might be able to give the most concrete feedback about, mm-hmm. I don't know. They, they were just really compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I have a lot to say. I mean, I, I think that the thing about not knowing what we know is once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, folks here today, we are still waiting for you to share thoughts. We love to hear from you. It makes it fun. Yeah. So the example that I love to give is that I'm a Japan anthropologist and I speak and read Japanese fluently. And there is absolutely no professional setting as a, as a scholar and an academic in which I could walk into the room and say, well, you know, I mean, you know, I, I read Japanese fluently. That would be, I would be laughed out of the room. I would be humiliated because everybody would be like, 
you're passing yourself off as a PhD, as an, as a Japan scholar, I should certainly hope so. And, and all the rest of us can too. And so it, that, that for a scholar of Japan studies is a perfect example or an anthropologist, frankly, because all but basically all anthropologists are fluent in some field language for the most part. And, and so you get no credit, none whatsoever. And so the thing is, if you live, and so everybody here today, thank you for commenting, by the way, we'll, we'll talk about your comments, but um, everybody here today, whether you're a chemist or whether you're a sociologist or whether you're classics, you have these tremendous skills that you spent a decade or more gaining, and then that you have to almost pretend like you don't have. When I say you don't know what you know, that's what I mean. And then there's all the other stuff, public speaking. You may not like it, but you're really good at it, or at least you're quite experienced at it, way more than the regular than the 99% of the rest of the population. Writing, writing to deadlines, um, writing to a specific word count, uh, reading a lot and reading critically, taking what you read and being able to summarize it in five minutes. All of these things are skills that every academic has that we completely take for granted. And you know, one of the people commenting in in the live conversation is saying that. They see themselves as employable in fields, and in particular talking about healthcare and nonprofit, because of project coordination, project leadership, and supervision of students and staff. I want to challenge to the next level that there is not an industry that you could not work in with the skills that that of those things. And I think if you have been a faculty member, if you have been a um, in a PhD program that allows you to teach. Um, if you've helped coordinate a conference, if you've done any of those things, you have project coordination, project leadership, and supervisory skills. Mm -hmm. So when Karen says you don't know what you know, it's because we think of, well, nobody's going to want me to, to hire me to teach an introduction to sociology class. You're right. Probably true. Now, that information in that introduction to sociology class is so written into your knowledge, you don't realize it's knowledge, you just think it's a given, that introduction to sociology class and how you can use that information to then be a project leader in a program, mm -hmm. in a, any business. Well, let me point out what else goes, out, goes into teaching a sociology class. You have to conceptualize a class. You have to write a syllabus. You have to manage an online learning management system. You have to do assessment. You have to go into the classroom and do teaching, which we can call training. So right. that's where we get into point number three, which is translation. And that's right. so, so to me that number one and number three go hand in hand because every, because, because there's so much work. You would go to some corporate employer and say, well, I've taught at sociology class. And they're going to be like, yeah, so, you know, what does that mean? But what you have to do is translate every single step along the way that nobody ever talks about, but you mastered. And some of that is, and like I said, some of that is running a learning management system, which is going to translate into a bunch of other skills for a, a corporate job, uh, assessment, training, uh, interpersonal skills. That's all aside, separate from the sociology knowledge. Right. You're not limited to your sociology knowledge or my anthro knowledge or my Japan knowledge. It's all this other stuff that um, that frames it, the technical skills in addition. But there's the technical skills, but there's also the intellectual analysis skills that, again, we think, well, I'm a I'm an anthropologist of Japan. Therefore, the only thing I can do is anthropology of Japan, mm -hmm. forgetting that there are 
all sorts of social scientists who work in businesses because you have to understand human behavior mm -hmm. because you understand a culture so thoroughly. I know that I probably use that incorrectly as an anthropologist. A cult. Can I say a culture? You, yeah, it's okay. Uh, yeah. Understand a culture so thoroughly that you can be, you can say that shirt will never sell. What are you thinking? I mean, mm -hmm. and I realized that, you know, you don't go into PhD and as an anthropology anthropologist of Japan and say, wow, I really want to be working for the gap, helping introduce their line into Japan. But I also think we have to look at, I'm always really challenged people when those things come up for them, that they've bought into the cult idea that this kind of work is good work. And this kind of work is bad work mm -hmm. and capitalism houses both of these jobs. And yes, in teaching, we get to, there's radical possibility within the classroom, no doubt about it. I would challenge to think about how there's radical possibility other places. So mm -hmm. that's one thing. And I want to get quickly get to one thing. Oh, you probably had something to say, Karen, but I want well, to get to this one thing. The Rhodes Scholar who ended up, I didn't really go deeply into it, but she ended up working at Starbucks and then she was the one who unionized Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, right? Talk about transforming lives, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a radical possibility. So right. Yeah, um, and I did have something else to say, but uh, we have some some good comments here. Well, there, there's one of these comments that says that the, 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 the speaker feels unemployable unless it's getting outside and getting dirty because they're not an administrator. And, 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 and I, I, you've, you've fallen into the university binary that there are only two jobs, right? There's <laughs> the job where you're a faculty member or you have to be an administrator. And those within the academy, it's not unreasonable to think that now there are variations I would argue, but right, but that's not, but that's not the only thing. And I think that we, when Karen says, you don't know what jobs are out there. I think you said that one, mm -hmm. you don't really know what's out there is we don't understand all of the possibilities. And, and believe me, I'm not saying this. If you listen to me at all in the last, however many long we've been doing this podcast, my rant against capitalism is persistent. I'm not making this argument that there's a nirvana of jobs out there. I'm just saying mm -hmm. within the confines of capitalism, there are actually quite a variety of jobs. And our, our media consumption makes us think that the only thing you can be in the world, as far as I can tell, is you can be a cop, a lawyer, a doctor, work in a coffee shop, or you can drive a truck because all the cop shows, everybody they interview is always loading stuff on and off docks. So those seem to be Right. Yeah. Everyone's a, while a very a impoverished imagination about the possibility. <laughs> oh, I know what I wanted to say. I'm so glad I remembered it. So going, stepping back um, and then stepping forward, because I want to talk about a comment we just got. Um, I am doing when I started the professor is in 11 years ago, I wouldn't didn't know it at the time, but I sure as heck know it now. I'm doing ethnography. I'm doing anthropology. I did brought an, an ethnographic analysis of of academic hiring. And I, and I, and I made it very, very, uh, very programmatic analysis of it. Basically, what are the scripts? Because I think there are scripts and mm -hmm. sure enough, there are scripts. Mm -hmm. And now this infuriates people who want to feel like they're all in this, like, you know, I don't know what exactly this, this unique and distinctive performance of, you know, brilliance, but no, no, it's pretty scripted. And in fact, there and for a, a, a conference abstract, there's basically a template for a cover letter. Is basically a template for a successful grant. There's basically a template. People hate this, but it's totally true. Well, and I'm, get, I'm getting wait, off the point. Wait, the point wait, is, wait, is that wait, I was an wait, anthropologist. Because I have to, I agree with you absolutely. 
And I know that there are people out here who are, I mean, I know we get the people who are like, you're trying to force us into a script, but I also want to acknowledge that we are, we are in the process of trying to show you what to do in the academy. I want to acknowledge that we know we're telling you how to speak and act in a particularly and, and direct the information in a particularly white male way. Mm-hmm. And I would really love it if I, I could get everybody I want in the academy so they could start saying, fuck that shit and actually mm-hmm. have a conversation that was mm-hmm. reflective of the diversity of the human beings out there. Yes. So I don't want people to think that because we'd say one that we're sort of like, this is the way it needs to be done to get in means we think it's right. So yeah. I always, I always wanna, say that, but I didn't want to actually get, want to get into the substance of what I do. I just wanted I know, to say, but I did. That it, so, well, I know. And I appreciate that, but it was an anthropological mind right, right. that brings you that, right. because really that's my training is I look for systems and I look for patterns and I found them and then I shared them through writing and speaking. Right. And <laughs> so and if I, you want an example of someone who brings their PhD stuff in a way that was completely outside the academy and yet entirely using it, this my, I am and this business is an example. And and I can say the same thing for me as a communication scholar and as a journalist, every single thing I do with the professors in, and it doesn't matter if I'm talking about how to do how to do a job interview, like how to deliver your messaging. I'm extremely interested in messaging. I'm extremely interested in all levels of messaging, the bullshit you're telling yourself in your head and the thing you're putting on the page. And I'm, and so if, you know, if you go back 30 years ago, when I was running the local queer newspaper and you say, what, where's the through line to um, my productivity groups where I'm talking about challenging particular forces that are inhibiting you, it's the same through line. So Mm -hmm. I think Somebody commented, we can use our exercise, our imaginations. And I feel like that's the thing. The Academy like sticks like a drain in the side of your head and sucks it out. It's like, you are not allowed imagination. You are only allowed to go this way. And all we're just like, like, look above the hedge. You're in the maze. Just look above the hedge. The hedge is only four feet tall. It's two but, and a half feet tall. You can see over the top. You're crawling. Stand up. Look over <laughs> Stand the hedge. Up. You can look over. Anyway, one of our commenters shared a link and says employers are looking for soft skills, which we all have more than most people. So I clicked yes. on the link and my gosh, it's fantastic. And it has some tables and at weighted average rating of competencies that employers are looking for. And guess what the first one is? Critical thinking, problem solving. Well, good heavens. I have to interrupt here. You sounded so like much like your mother at that exact moment. Oh, good heavens. Good heavens, (laughs) Karen. Your Pittsburgh accent just went. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, critical thinking and problem solving teamwork and collaboration. Now I know that humanities folks tend to be not great with that, but certainly a lot of lab-based people fantastic with teamwork and collaboration, professionalism and work ethic. That's where I'm always going on and on about. Do you understand how punctual academics tend to be? Do you understand how much when you tell them to read something uh, before a meeting that that stuff has been read, they come in prepared? Like we have a tremendous professionalism and work ethic, oral and written communications. Well, we're way above the average in that kind of thing. Digital technology, way above the average in that thing because of learning management systems, as well as social media. Leadership, that takes leadership to come up with a doctoral project and to see it through and to get funding and to defend it in front of a committee. That's leadership. 
career management, global and multicultural fluency. That's the top list. We have every single one of those. So I don't want anyone to ever, ever say, I don't want anyone. And I mean, I'm like a proselytizer about this. That's why I'm leading that thing, doing that workshop this month. And I'll keep doing more and more and more is I want everyone to understand how brilliant you are and how skilled you are at so Mm -hmm. many extraordinary Mm -hmm. things. Absolutely extraordinary. And we'll put that link in the podcast right up so you can see it. And I, I want to go back to the teamwork thing, because I think that we need to, we need to sort of flip the idea of teamwork on its head. If you have managed a, if you have worked with a committee to get your PhD finished, if you have worked with your department to get tenure, if you have done navigated a collaborative project, anything, if you've written, if you've co-written a, an article, mm-hmm right? The collaboration, if you have, if you've worked with a museum to be able to, you know, do the work you need to do to look at Chinese paintings and then do a joint exhibit, you've done teamwork. Mm -hmm. So don't, I think we need to be careful to not define teamwork as like, we all like group work. I don't think group group work and teamwork are the same thing. And also so many people just, even just starting in grad school will work with a, with the group to bring in a, to do a speaker series or to, to bring, to organize an event. And that is all teamwork. So yeah, service panels for conferences, advising a hundred percent that's teamwork. So I just want to say, for those of you who are um, still kind of like, I don't know about this, the person on the, on the webinar who is giving all the soft skills and all the things that they do is a chair of a department. And so is looking at this from a top, a a little bit different perspective than being um, down in the fighting in it. And I know that she's doing that too, but really looking at, oh, wait a minute, these are all these things. And part of that process, I think for everybody can be, I'm going to start to value what I do. I'm actually going to like a little bit of a flex here and start saying, oh, wow, I'm actually valuable and useful in this. And that's where I think you can change your relationship with the academy. You could decide to stay because you start to say, look at all my skills. Look at everything I do. I'm not you know, scrambling along, trying to prove my worth to you. I can do project management. I can do this. I can do that. Look at all the service I do. Look at the mentoring I do. Look at these things I do. I, I bring a shit ton to the table. Step back. Mm-hmm. You're lucky I'm, to have me. You're lucky to have me. And I'm not going to spend all my time scrambling yeah. for you to appreciate me. I appreciate yeah. me. Yeah. And I'm not going to be a martyr. <laughs> right. You. Right. Well, we are almost out of time. I wanted to ask if anybody has anything to share now at this point. And I realize now we should make it clear in every episode that we don't share names. Absolutely not. That's really important. Yeah. And we don't, we never do. And if you know the professors and you know that that's our sacrosanct rule. That I think the first, time confidentiality. We, we, the first time we did one of these, we may have used a first name and then we reminded ourselves that mm-hmm. we needed to be sure and do that. But you're um, one of the things I love about people being on the live call to be able to do this. And one of the reasons that Karen and I started doing it this way is, you know, we, we have been together for 20 years. We talk to each other all the time, sitting down in front of microphones just to talk to each other about the topics we talk about anyway, like sitting in the living room going, 
I don't know. I think that maybe we need to rethink our conversation about the Academy in this way. Hey, did you mm -hmm. read this article? Did you do that? Mm -hmm. We're, we're kind of a closed loop sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, and we get in our positions. So it's really great <laughs> to have other people challenge us to, to think yeah, about them differently. For sure. So thank you very much for the folks who um, do mm -hmm. come. All right. So that looks like what we have for today. Mm -hmm. And if you have any suggestions for topics you want us to talk about, you can put them here or, you know, any of the other multitude of ways that you can get in touch with us, email or Facebook or uh, Twitter. They're all good. 